0: We'll turn turn our attention to to the word of the Lord uh, at this time. And uh, my thought for today is uh, is a very broad topic, um, but I'm going to try to be as brief as I can. And so taking that, uh, I've got got quite a bit of ground to cover, but I want to try to do it very efficiently. Our topic for this morning is atonement. Atonement. And I want to take my lesson text this morning from the fourth chapter of the book of Leviticus. Now, as you find it, uh, it's Leviticus chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 13 through 21. Leviticus chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. And as you flip over there, one of the things that I would like to kind of direct your thoughts toward is atonement is one of the primary issues that the book of Leviticus addresses. And the book of Leviticus is referred to, oftentimes, as the heart of the law. And, uh, and you can look at that and say, well, it's the literal heart of the law in that it's in the middle, right? Because you have two books that are before it and two books that are after it. Genesis and Exodus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Um, but it's the heart of the law because the, the primary topic that it addresses is the atonement for sin. And if there's one thing that humanity has in common, it's that we're all sinners. And the old question is, do I sin because I'm a sinner or am I a sinner because I commit sin? I think I may have gotten that backwards, but uh, but you're a you're not a you're not a sinner because you commit sin. You you commit sin because you are a sinner, Uh, and there is only one remedy for that sin. Now, when we look back into the law, we see pictures of that atonement, that atoning sacrifice. We're going to look at that picture today. And then we're going to look at the real sacrifice. In other words, we're going to look at the type, and we're going to look at the antitype. Uh, And, of course, the antitype being Jesus. And so Leviticus chapter 4, verse 13, starting in verse 13. And if the whole congregation of Israel sin through ignorance, and the thing be hid from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done somewhat against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which should not be done, and are guilty... When the, when the sin which they have sinned against it is known, then the congregation shall offer a young bullock for the sin and bring him before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands upon the head of the bullock before the Lord, and the bullock shall be killed before the Lord. And the priest that is anointed shall bring of the bullock's blood to the tabernacle of the congregation. And the priest shall dip his finger in some of the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord, even before the veil. And he shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord, that is in the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall pour out all the blood at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he shall take all his fat from him and burn it upon the altar. And he shall do with the bullock as he did with the bullock for a sin offering. So shall he do with this. And I would like to stop and just interject there. That when it says just that, that he shall do with the bullock as he did at with the bullock for the sin offering, that's referring to the priest the priest that had offered a bullock for his own sin before he could offer the a, a bullock for the sins of the p- congregation or the people and so that's the that's why it's, it's stated such uh, thusly uh, and the priest shall make an atonement for them and it shall be forgiven them and he shall carry forth the bullock without the camp and burn him as he burned the first bullock it is a sin offering for the congregation. And so we're going to stop with that reading right there. And as again, our, our, our thought for today is uh, atonement. And this being the day that we observe the Lord's Supper, this is a memorial service. Uh, Jesus, when he instituted the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, he said, this do in remembrance of me. And so that's what we intend to do here today. We intend to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made there on the cross of Calvary that we would have the opportunity to be saved. And you may be here today, there may be somebody here today who does not know Jesus in the free pardon and forgiveness of sin we've all been there we were sinners before we were saved uh, and uh, and we continue to sin afterward because it lies that sin does lie in the flesh uh, but uh, but we're expected to put that sin into subjection and uh, and and make that Flesh becomes subservient to the will of the Spirit, and not just our own, but the indwelling Spirit that takes up residence in us, because our body is the temple uh, of the Lord. And, and so here we see that, uh, starting with this thirteenth verse, that the whole congregation of Israel is has sinned. And now you can say, well, how in the world is it to such a place that the whole congregation of Israel has sinned? Uh, and and, and, um, and, and sinned in ignorance, as it says here uh, in the Scriptures, uh, because they don't know why they've sinned. And the simple answer to that is, is because they were taught it. They were taught it by the priests. They were taught it by uh, by those that would have been sitting on the Sanhedrin. Though we can look at uh, down the road uh, and see that when the Sanhedrin uh, came into existence, that was after the four hundred silent years of the interbiblical period, uh, following the take following the, the the period of time in which they were taken uh, into captivity and came back. And uh, and so uh, that's during the interbiblical period, really, that you see this rise of Pharisees. And Sadducees and the Sanhedrin was a real thing; uh, it existed back then. But in the context in which we see it in the day of Jesus, in which it's not not purely uh, for a judgmental purpose, but it's also a very much a uh, it's very much a political entity. Uh, in that you have rival political factions in the personhood of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and I would say the Essenes, or Essenes, uh, however you may want to look at pronouncing that, uh, but they had pretty well seg isolated themselves off in the desert, and so they didn't really play that much of a part as it pertained to the Sanhedrin. Uh, And and so here, uh, we see that the whole congregation of Israel has sinned because those that were charged and tasked with teaching the law and teaching the way to approach God had erred in and of themselves. That's the significance of the priest, first and foremost, offering for his sins uh, before before he can even uh, remove Remotely consider offering uh, the sacrifice for the sins of the people. Now, I would like to say this, that those sacrifices which they offered back in those days, they, that was only a temporary fix, wasn't it? That was like putting a band-aid on a broken bone. It wasn't going to really heal it. Uh, we look here in, uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 9. And we read about uh, in, in chapter 9 and verse 13 and 14, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify to the purifying of the of the flesh, uh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offer himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We only repent from dead works once, don't we? Uh, we repent from work, from dead works once, and then we uh, uh, we move on, and, uh, and 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 we move into the maturity, uh, which is the Christian life. Uh, and so uh, we look at that verse of Scripture, and we tied that in with uh, the tenth chapter of the book of Hebrews. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Uh, but now those things were remembered year after year, weren't they? Uh, and that remembrance came once a year, and they would have to come and offer for their sins sins again Uh, that just shows that those sacrifices never did truly atone for their sins they did for a short period of time but those sins would be remembered again and again the significance in the distinguishment between the sacrifice of jesus christ and his shed blood versus the sacrifice of the shed blood of bulls and goats is that when the blood of christ is applied god says their sins and iniquities i will remember no more And there's a complete atoning. For sin. There's an expiation for sin. And that's the uh, theological word that you would use to describe that. Your sins have been expiated, mainly main, meaning they have been atoned. We go to the tabernacle. We look at the tabernacle prior to the temple and the foundation of the tabernacle of silver. That was what that represented, was the atoning sacrifice of God. And so we look here in uh, Leviticus chapter 4, and we see that the whole congregation is in sin, uh, and they don't even know it. They don't even know it. I look around our country today and I see a country that lies in sin. And because there's so many that preach so many different variations of salvation, instead of just salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, there's so many that don't even realize that they're in sin. They believe that their works can save them, and that their works have a part, or that their works have a part in their salvation. Uh, they may believe that um, in some other doctrine, uh, such as Calvinism, they may believe that they're eternally damned or that they're eternally saved. Uh, and, and so, there's a lot of differing, th- differing things, uh, a lot of variances in just within the realm of Christianity. Uh, and so, I look at the, the things that are gone, that have gone on there, and uh, and and just it makes me, it puzzles me and uh and that we have such divergence on the teaching as it pertains to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and so i 'm only going to highlight a few things here, so what has to happen is that uh, is that it 's hid from their eyes and they 've done somewhat against the commandment of the Lord concerning the things which should be should not be done, and look at this at the end of that fourteenth verse or the thirteenth verse there, God says, and they 're guilty. <laughs> Right, that's what you have to understand. Uh, if you're here today and you haven't been saved by the grace of God, the blood of Jesus hasn't been applied to your heart. That's what you have to understand: is that in front of God you're guilty, aren't you? Guilty for what? Guilty for sin. And what what is the what is the proper what is the proper punishment for sin? Death and and being found fit for death uh, and worthy of death because of the guilt, that's what you can't get away from when you get under conviction. Everybody wants to talk about conviction in these vagaries. Let me lay it out for you very simply. It's the moment that you realize that you're guilty before God for your sins, and you can't escape that guilt. You can run from it. You can try to hide from it. You can do all the things in the world to try to satiate that guilt. But nothing's going to satiate that guilt except that God would bestow upon you mercy and forgiveness. When a criminal is openly guilty before the court, he doesn't appear before the court and try to extol his righteousness does he? He appears before the court and recognizes his guilt and he throws himself as the as the old sayings go, I throw myself on the mercies of the court, implying meaning the judge is the one who has to grant pardon doesn't he? He has to grant leniency. He has to grant mercy and forgiveness for the things that have happened. And that's what you're seeking here. And God says and are guilty, uh, guilty of sin against God. And so here, when, they, when, that, when the knowledge of that sin comes in and when the sin which they have sinned against it is known, right? And we should be able to think about this as it pertains to Jesus Christ. When did that knowledge sink in for them? It sank in at the day of Pentecost, didn't it? When Peter stood up in the temple and he began to preach and they were pricked in their hearts and they said, uh, uh, "And they said, what is this? And, and, and Peter told them that they were guilty for the uh, murder of Jesus Christ and that He was God in the flesh uh, among other things. I don't want to go over there and read the whole thing for you, but But Peter rehearsed that in their ears. And they asked, well, what must we do to be saved? Uh, And Peter said, repent. (laughs) See, you're not going to get saved without repentance. Repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Because He went to the cross and died for your sin. And so we're going to look here. So they have to come to this realization of their sin. That's the job of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? of well, the the very first job of the Holy Spirit is to convince the world that's what it says in the King James uh, interpretation but the in to convince the world of sin where does the the Holy Spirit convince the world of sin it's not on a macro level it's on a micro level isn't it it's individually person to person God lets you know what your sin is he lets you know that he knows what your sin is he lets you know that you're guilty of that sin and that's why it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God because you understand that you rightly stand in opposition to God. And being as such stand as an enemy to God. And being standing as an enemy to God are worthy of death because of sin. And so here uh, we see this all playing out. And then what do they do? What do they do as a in response to this? Then the congregation or the assembly or the church, whatever, whatever word you want to use there, any one of them will fit the, fit the text. But then the congregation shall offer a young bullock for their sins. They'll take they'll go, they'll they'll lay their hands on a bullock, uh, bring him, uh, well, they'll pick one out, they'll go to him, they'll lay their hands on him, then they'll slay him. So we're going to look here. And you'll bring him before the tabernacle of the congregation, we in 14. 15, the elders of the congregation lay their hands upon the head of the bullock. It's very important that it's the elders of the congregation. It's the rulers of Israel who lay their hands on it. Uh, Now there's some discrepancy in who that is. I believe it's the rulers of Israel, the rulers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And you may say, well, that's not possible that you'd be able to get all of them in one place. I think if God says you do it, you go do it. Some believe it was three members of the Sanhedrin. Whatever your interpretation of who that is that lays their hands on it, the significance is, is that the nation recognizes the sin that they've committed against God and they lay their hands on that bullock uh, and that bullock uh, takes on that sin uh, and that bullock is slain for that sin. And so we see that. Uh, and in verse, in verse 15, they lay their hands upon the head of the bullock before the Lord and the bullock shall be killed before the Lord how they thought that the Messiah was going to come into the world and not suffer death is beyond me when they know that his job was what's laid out in the atonement for sin and so we look here and uh, and we're going to just stop right there and all the things that the priests do uh, afterward uh, the the sprinkling of the blood uh, there, uh, the the anointed shall bring the bullock's blood into the tabernacle and shall dip his finger in, in his blood and some of the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord, even before the veil, which was his flesh. And he'll put it on the horns of the altar. That is before the tabernacle of the congregation. And so I want to... I want to pause there, and I want to go over, and I want us to look at the account of the instant when Jesus was laid hands on as a sacrifice, and you say, well, Jesus, I don't know about that. I, I, I I I believe I can show this, and that's what we're going to try to do here. Matthew chapter twenty six verses forty nine and fifty. You don't have to turn over there and read it with me. You already know what it is. Uh, and 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 forthwith he came to Jesus, meaning Judas, and he said, Hail master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, where art thou come? And then they then came they and laid their hands on him. Now that's how Matthew relays it. And the they that came and laid their hands on him would have been the Romans. It would have been the elders of Israel, right? It would have been the chief priest. It would have been the scribes. It would have been those that were tasked with the responsibility of teaching the people how to approach God. Of the Pharisees, Jesus said, they sit in Moses' seat. And so we look at this and we see this. And uh, and so Matthew, which is written to the Jews, goes from the, the moment Judas... Uh, Points him out. Jesus asks him why he's come, and then they take him. Now this same thing, Mark, Mark records it the same way. These are the Synoptists. Mark says that he comes, and as soon as he was come, he goes straightway to him, meaning Judas, and saith, "Master, Master!" And he kissed him, and then they laid hands on him and took him. That's in uh, verses forty-five and forty-six in Luke chapter 40 uh 22 uh verses uh 47 through 50 uh but we're only going to touch on the first few here and while he yet spake behold, behold a multitude uh that he uh, and he that was called Judas and one of the 12 went before them and he drew near unto Jesus to kiss him but Jesus said unto him Judas betrayest thou the son of man with the kiss and when they went and and when they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, "Lord, shall we smite him with the sword?" And of course, that's when Peter draws his sword. And so, Judas, Luke follows, tra- tra- follows the track in line. The same way with Luke follows Mark and Matthew. Have I ever mentioned that I love the Book of John? <laughs> Is anybody familiar with an interlude? <laughs> an interlude's an episode which gives you details that you didn't, you wouldn't know existed without the details. And so I'll give you an, an, an example here, uh, and Matthew will, Matthew will catch this. Well, and Casey will probably catch this. You know, my Star Wars peeps are going to catch this. And so several years back, there was a movie that came out. It's called Rogue One. The whole point of the movie was to basically fill in the gap. Between episode three and episode four. How did we get to this place? And that's what that movie's, that whole movie's an interlude. And if you think about it in terms of music, is anybody uh, familiar with the term bridge? What's a bridge? A bridge in Western music is something that stands in contrast to, to what is actually occurring and something that is in contrast to what we generally would think about something, but it brings it back around to the point that's being made, right? And so here we think about this, and John's going to interject a bridge. He's going to, John's going to present an interlude. Because I want us to point out this. I want to point out this. In the 10th chapter of John, in the 17th and 18th verses, this is when Jesus is teaching the parable about he being the door of the sheep and that if they were going to be in the flock, they're going to have to enter in through the door of the sheepfold, Jesus being the door. And then he follows that up with saying, not only am I the door to the sheepfold, but I am the good shepherd of the sheep, and I'm not a hireling. Because the hireling sees trouble, and I'm paraphrasing this, and the hireling runs away because he's only in it for the money. But the good shepherd, he would give his life for the sheep. In the 17th verse of John chapter 10, John says this, uh, John records it as this, Jesus speaking. He says, Therefore doth my Father love me because I lay down my life. Notice how he says that. I lay down my life. And he's going to follow back up on that in the 18th verse. And then he follows it up with this, that I might take it again. And he's going to clarify that in the 18th verse. He says, I lay down my life that I might take it again. And then in verse 18 he says, no man taketh it from me. And so generally the way we think about this happening where Judas shows up with the Roman centurions, with the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, uh, when they show up there to capture Jesus, to lay hands on him, to seize him, Right? That's when uh, we generally think of that there was no resistance and nothing happened and that they just took Jesus by force. Does anybody here believe you can take God by force? (laughs) You can't force God to do anything, can you? He's God. He He surpasses that. And John gives us an interlude or if we want to think about it in the context of a song, John takes us to the bridge. And he gives us a detail about the night that Jesus was taken that the Synoptists don't give us. And it's a fascinating detail. And so it's in John chapter 18. Judas with his band comes in verse 3. And he says, and this is where John's the one who makes very specific mention of who it is. And having received a band of men and the officers of the chief priests and Pharisees cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Judas is leading a mob to Christ, isn't he? <laughs> I mean that's the that's exactly what it is. A mob has come to seize and lay hold on. The incarnate God. And so here, Jesus uh, seeing that and knowing what was going to happen because he's premonition in that he's omniscient. He knows everything that's going to happen and he can perceive their thoughts. And so Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? Very simple question, isn't it? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus saith unto them, "May, a me. I am. You know there's power in God's name. <laughs> and nobody stands before God's name in obstinance. Jesus demonstrated his power. And I say his deity there that night. Now, he demonstrated it greater when he rose from the grave on the third day. But let's look and see what he says when he says me a me or ego a me, right, in, in the Greek. Ego a me. And Judas also which betrayed him and stood with them. Then as soon as he had said unto them, Ego a me, or we can also say me a me, they went backward and fell to the ground. They were struck, weren't they, there on that mountain before they seized him. Because what did he say? In verse ten, or chapter ten, in verse seven, verse eighteen, no man taketh it from me. If Jesus did not want to be taken that night, he could have absolutely refused to be taken by his omnipotent power. Isn't it a humbling thing to know that we serve a God? That chose to be a sacrifice for our sins. Isn't that amazing? Then Jesus, after they have, after they went backwards and have fallen to the ground, then he asked them again, Whom seek ye? <laughs> and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered them and said, I told you that I am. If ye therefore seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake of. Of them which thou gavest me have I lost none. Jesus demonstrated his power on that mountain so that the disciples that remained, the eleven, would not fall into the same condemnation that he was going to face there at Calvary. After this, John says, Peter draws his sword and smites or, or, or smote the, the the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear and that servant's name was Malchus. an irony of irony. <laughs> This servant's name means king or kingdom, and he's there to arrest the king of kings, to whom the kingdom belongs. I hate I hate I hate and so we we look at all of that, and all of that is to come into to, to, to the memory of what Jesus has done for us. We're not saved by the blood of bulls and goats. But all all sin must be purged as yet by blood. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. When When we observe the Lord's Supper, we do it knowing that He willingly, voluntarily, suffered that death for you and I. And if you're here today and you're lost, he willingly and voluntarily suffered that death for you. That's our message this morning. And so while we get ready to observe the Lord's Supper, if we could prepare ourselves, and hopefully we're already prepared before we came, keep that thought in mind the omniscient, omnipotent God. He didn't just humble himself to be born in a a manger. The degree that he humbled himself to be sacrificed as an offering for sin far exceeds his birth. So I'm going to ask the deacons if they would at this time to come forward as we prepare to